Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the doctorscore.com physician rating website. For all its goods, our healthcare system has safety problems, it has high costs, and we know it needs to change. But where will this change come from? Who's going to provide the leadership? Who's going to provide the ideas? The Center for Health Transformation is a private and public collaboration that was created to help foster a 21st century intelligent health system that saves lives and saves money for all Americans. The center is based on the premise that small changes or reactionary fixes to separate pieces of the system have not and will not work. We need system-wide transformation. The Center for Health Transformation was founded by Newt Gingrich. If you visit the center's website at www.healthtransformation.net, you'll find a list of the strengths of the center that very much reminds me of Newt Gingrich's contract with America. To speak to us today about the Center for Health Transformation and its work, we have Jim Frog, Vice President and Director of State Policy at the Center for Health Transformation. Jim's primary interests are Medicaid and consumerism, and he has a special passion for ending the costly fraud in our healthcare system. In fact, he's editor of the book, Stop Paying the Crooks, Solution to End the Fraud that Threatens Your Healthcare. Jim, welcome to our program today. People look at the healthcare system and see one of two things. Either they've been to the doctor, they know they're getting fabulous medical care, they feel really comfortable with it. Or at the opposite extreme, they see a system that wastes money, that's full of uh, safety risks, that leaves people um, without access. Uh, Where do you see things standing? What are the major problems we really have to work on? Well, both of those views are accurate. Uh, They don't have to be zero-sum where one is right and one isn't. Uh, The truth is America certainly does have the best medical technology in the world. And survival rates for particular cancers or ailments are much higher here than anywhere else. Uh, But not everyone has access to those, and that's an issue. You do raise an interesting point about the fraud, waste, and abuse in our healthcare system, which I edited a book on last year called Stop Paying the Crooks. And there is extremely significant amounts of waste, fraud, and abuse in our system. And we assert it's over $100 billion, that's 100 with a B, billion dollars a year in Medicare and Medicaid every year. And even 60 Minutes agrees with that, that level of uh, that estimate. So uh, the system, it, it does work well for most people most of the time but we could do a lot better job making it more efficient, more focused, and more accessible. When people talk about the fraud, it seems like they may be talking about very different things. What are some examples of the common forms of fraud that are out there? 
Well, we'll start with fraud, flat-out theft, black and white, no gray area, no upcoding, no, oh, well, that, no argument. No argument is things like people opening up storefronts in Miami uh, where they don't have any durable medical equipment on site and never do, and bill Medicare for wheelchairs at $5,000 a pop or oxygen supplies or anything. And 60 Minutes did a special on this back in October of 2009 and captured the culture extremely well. And 60 Minutes said $60 billion a year stolen out of Medicare, and this is a, this is a piece of the puzzle. So, so when, it when, really I'm sorry, Jim. When they yeah. say $60 billion, are they talking about $60 billion of the kind of no-argument uh, fraud or, or is $60 billion the overall um, fraud problem? The way they framed it, it was the no argument black and white. Wow, that's and those the, people should the, the be locked up. The clip's only about twelve minutes long, but it was Steve Croft. It was the leading clip that day. I think it was October twenty sixth. But it's easy to find on Google. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a very powerful piece, and they interviewed a guy who had been a, a rare guy that was actually caught for bilking Medicare, and he said, "Yeah, they were just depositing twenty, thirty, thirty thousand dollars a day into my bank account when all I did was send them some information, and uh, everything was fake." And when you watch it, it just makes you so angry that our system could be run that incompetently. Because, for example, if you look at the credit card industry, which is bigger than Medicare and Medicaid combined and very complicated also, the amount of fraud there is one-tenth of one percent, where it's at least 10 percent in Medicare and Medicaid, which is 100 times worse. So the one proposal we have, which sounds a little funny but really is very serious, is the authentication of all new Medicare suppliers should be outsourced to Visa or MasterCard because they actually know how to do it. That would be a big step in the right direction and very easy to do and cost-free. So is it your sense that 60 Minutes was right, that that most of this or this huge amount of Medicare fraud is just no argument there's somebody criminally billing Medicare for things that just weren't done? Right. That, that's that's correct. And well, our we can all agree out, to get rid uh, of that. What's that? We can all agree that that, that needs to go. Right. And it, it's a very good place to start. We've done a lot of polling on this in the last year. And the American people, even if they can't give you one example of Medicare fraud, just intuitively grasp that there's a lot of fraud in that system. In fact, there was a great poll. It wasn't healthcare focused. It was generally focused. And I would ask you and your listeners, you don't necessarily have to give me an answer, but just to think in your own mind. Uh, Gallup did a poll last fall where they asked people, what percent of all federal spending is wasted? It was phrased just like that, so it's your definition of wasted. What percent of all federal federal spending is wasted? Democrats, on average, said 41 percent, Republicans 54, and Independents 55, which is an average of 50. So your average American thinks half of all federal spending is wasted. So if you're trying to convince them there's fraud in Medicare and Medicaid, they already believe you. What are the other kinds of Medicare fraud that are going on? Well, once you that's the stuff that's absolute black and white. Billing for services that didn't exist, getting a hold of people's uh, Medicare ID numbers, sometimes with their knowledge, sometimes without, and billing for services. Very often this happens in Florida. Medicaid, for example, I talked with a state rep about a year ago prior to testifying to the Senate, and he's in Miami. He said, yeah, I wa-, this is a state representative, said, I watch buses pull up into my parking lot where I have my district office. People all file into a storefront right down 20 yards from mine, and they walk out half an hour later counting their cash. All they did was submit their Medicare and or Medicaid numbers. They made a photocopy of it and started billing, and they cut people in for part of the money. 
And that kind of stuff is hard to stop, but it's pervasive. It's everywhere. And again, it's it's bi- tens of billions of dollars a year. And uh, Congress really whiffed an opportunity to get some savings by cracking down on fraud in the bill that became law in March. Besides fraud, what are some of the other key problems with our health care system? Well, certainly we have uh, several tens of millions of people without health insurance, and that needs to be rectified. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, you know, depending how you count it, between 35 and 40 million uh, American citizens without health insurance. Now, a lot of them are young people who are bouncing between jobs and just don't see the need for health care insurance. I was one of them when I was 25. <laughs> I, I didn't, you know, I certainly didn't have $100 a month to buy health insurance, which is something I'm sure I would never need. Now, I got lucky and didn't have any incident, and that is true for a lot of younger people. Uh, but then there are people who are chronically uninsured and have high medical expenses and can't get coverage elsewhere. And that's where I think there are some innovative solutions that states are trying and um, the federal government's looking at as well. But it would make more sense if our health insurance system didn't follow you job to job. That's a relic of World War II that worked fine when you graduated from high school in 1947 and worked at the Ford plant till you retired. But in our hyper-modern, speedy economy, um, it's, it would be much more efficient and sane if people bought health insurance the same way they bought car insurance or life insurance, where they bought it and they kept it. And if, they didn't, if the company treated them badly, they moved on. All right. Fraud, the uninsured, what other key things need to get fixed? Isn't that enough to keep us busy for a little while? All right. So, <laughs> you, no, no you, but those you, those two are, are huge issues. Oh, um, that's great. I think the issue of medical errors is another one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that there's been a lot of light on, and I think as technology improves, that will start to go away. But the other problem we have in, in the American system is we have an abundance of technology, an abundance of solutions that are new and newer and better treatments are constantly coming online, but they're very very expensive. So it's actually our, our problem is that we have too many options for some people. This is not for everyone, of course, but we have so many new options, so many new treatments, so many new drugs, but when they come online, they're very expensive. And uh, it gets hard for everyone to afford the newest and latest and most expensive product right when it's out of the gate. Um, you know, we tolerate the rich being able to afford things and things like cell phones or computers or cars. But in healthcare, uh, the American mindset is more that everyone should have access to the best care whenever they need it, and um, you know becomes a, a little more of a, becomes a more complicated issue. I, I want to talk about the Center for Healthcare Transformation and what it's doing to address these issues like fraud and uninsured medical errors, cost. But you raise such an interesting question when you talk about cost and cars and cell phones and how we say, okay, the the rich can afford these things. You know, cell phone technology is extraordinary, and it's not only the rich who can afford it. It seems like there's something very different um, between our medical system and our system of cars and cell phones. The the quality of, of things like cell phones and computers is just improving dramatically yeah, at the same right? time that the costs You're right. are dropping. And while medical quality, I grant you, it's great. I mean, the things that I have today to offer my patients were things we didn't even imagine when I went to medical school 25 years ago. But the cost, they haven't gone down. Efficiencies uh, in other industries are associated with reduction in cost. What's the difference here? Exactly right. 
Well, you're, you're exactly right. And cell phones and laptop computers and iPads and all that, every year the quality goes up, the options expand, and the costs go down. Now, overall costs might go up because people are spending more on these things, uh, but the cost the unit costs always to crash. Um, now, keep in mind, 25 years ago, not a single American spent a single penny on cell phones. Mm-hmm. Once they came out, you know, it's a part of everyone's budget now. I mean, it's something like 98% penetration. People have cell phones, and uh, everyone spends a portion of their budget. So it was something that we deemed necessary, and it's made our life more convenient, more accessible, and all that. Um, but in healthcare, it's interesting how you, your point is exactly right. In other sectors, we have a very free and open market, and there are no government dictates on what has to be covered and what doesn't have to be covered, what the price is uh, for cell phones, for example. And if you applied the Medicare payment model to cell phones, if you even suggested that in a serious way, people would think you're absolutely insane. And I think that's a really important point to make, that if you apply to any sector, it's not just cell phones, if you applied, okay, here's we're, we're going to apply how Medicare decides what to cover and how much Medicare pays. We're going to apply that model to cell phones or laptops or cars or shoes or restaurants, any industry. People will think you're absolutely out of your mind. Yet somehow that model is we tolerate it in healthcare, and as a result, we have a system that is not responsive, that gets dated too quickly, and costs uh, that prices are not going, are not crashing the way they are everywhere else. I think one reason people would say, well, there's a big difference between buying groceries and buying healthcare, buying a cell phone and buying healthcare, is and going to the grocery store, the place you buy cell phones, and uh, things are affordable. Whereas healthcare, it's just so expensive. Of course, you have to have insurance or a Medicare-like model or something to be able to afford it. And I think what what we fail to realize is the fact that the Medicare model and the insurance is the cause of those high costs um, and not a solution to them. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I think that's right. And the cost uh, – there was a great article in the New York Times back in September of 2003 by a woman named Gina Collada. And it followed around a bunch of senior citizens in South Florida as they used Medicare services. And to oversimplify the story, basically what they found was there was a lot of seniors who would go to four or five podiatrists just because they could because it didn't cost them anything, because they were visiting Ann Ethel out in Fort Lauderdale. And, oh, Ann Ethel has a great podiatrist. Let's just swing by, and there are no cost consequences. Well, if everybody behaves that way, then the overall costs go up significantly. And private health care, Blue Cross or United or Aetna or any other ones, essentially has the same dynamic, which is your co-payments are somewhat limited, depending if you have a very generous health plan, and a lot of people do. But if getting if you can get as much out of the plan as you want with no consequences, then everyone behaves that way. But the the upshot is everyone ends up paying for it. Jim, it, so what it, what it sounds like you're saying driver of our overall cost that unfortunately is rarely talked about. Yeah, basically, it sounds like what you're saying is that basic economic principles of incentives affect um, what's happening in our healthcare system. <laughs> Pretty radical concept. I know, huh? a pretty radical concept. Well, okay. It's a pretty radical concept, and it really is true. Um, and you know what, what's interesting, and in, in being a physician, you, you you may or may not know people like this, but it, it's a small movement, but it's a growing one, and I think it's snowballing quickly. Is physicians who just decide they don't want to take any third party payer whatsoever. 
So they don't take Medicare. They don't take Medicaid. A lot of some of them now don't even take private health insurance because they're just sick of it. They're done with it. They're done with the micromanaging. I went to medical school. I'm a smart guy. My patients lovely, love me. I don't need some HMO or some Medicare bureaucracy telling me what I can and can't do and paying me what they determine, not what my patient and I determine. And so doctors are saying, look, we're done with it. Um, we are just going to take cash and it is growing, and doctors are doing better financially than they would have expected. Uh, in, interestingly, I'd be interested in your reaction to this, if I can just maybe turn the tables and ask sure. you one question. Uh, Massachusetts is seriously considering a law that's going to tie medical licensure to acceptance of Medicare and Medicaid. Yes, well, um, you know, now, some of my The my nuances colleagues... of how to do that, I mean, does that mean anyone who presents as a Medicaid patient, they have to take? That part really hasn't been clarified yet. Um, but I think a lot of physicians, if they, you know, because Medicaid pays so poorly, pays even worse than Medicare. Medicare pays worse than private plans. If you're a physician, you've done all this training, you finally set up shop, and they tell you you can't see who you want to see. You have to see these people that pay a third of what the people you want to see pay. Um, I think that's going to drive a lot of doctors out of the profession, at very least drive them out of Massachusetts. Well, it, it may well. You know, some of my my colleagues would say that's unconstitutional, but you know, if you want to have <laughs> yeah, a license, well, yeah, that's if, a whole other argument. Yeah, but we but, can maybe but, focus a little more narrowly for now, right? But if if you want the to to have a license to drive a car, you got to agree to play by the rules. And if you want a license to practice medicine, the state can regulate you. And you know, it's a uh, it's a great joy and privilege being a physician, and taking care of people in need is something we all look forward to as physicians. Um, I, th I think you have to separate um, the idea of insurers telling us what to do from insurers telling us what they'll pay for because it's reasonable for patients to have contracts with their insurer and if, they don't, if the rules say they don't pay for something, well, you know, that's, they're not insured for that. That's, you know, not entirely unreasonable within um, the practice of medicine. Um, but our system has gotten so complicated, and you've got still, despite all the great care that's out there, problems with fraud, the uninsured, the medical errors, and the tremendously high cost of things. Jim, you work at the Center for Health Transformation. Tell us, what is the Center for Health Transformation, and how are you going to help us fix some of these problems? Well, the Center for Health Transformation is an eight-year-old organization founded by Newt Gingrich. We have about a hundred members. We're a private sector organization. We don't take any government funds. Uh, our overall budget is only about $8 million a year. So as organizations in Washington and other places go, we're, we're a very small group. Um, and we work with governors and Congress and people who want to work with us on creating what we define uh, the intelligent healthcare system of tomorrow. Our website is healthtransformation.net. There's a lot of information there about what we do, but we focus on a range of things. We focus on health information technology, for example. We focus on the fraud issue. We focus on community health. And more than anything, what we like to do is we don't necessarily think we're the smartest people in the world with all the answers. But I think what we are very good at is we have a very good network around the country. And what we're good at is finding examples of success and spreading those far and wide. So if there's a health plan in Omaha that's showing great results at lower costs, then 
we can say, well, why don't other why don't other employers do this? If the state of Indiana has 70% of their state employees in health savings accounts now and showing lower uh, growth rates and more savings for people that are in those plans, why wouldn't other states look at that as well when they're all suffering budget issues? Um, those are just two examples. There's a lot more. What are what are what are the hospitals of tomorrow? What do hospitals look like that are very transparent with their pricing and their quality outcomes? And why can't more hospitals have features like that? So uh, across a range of issues, what we try and do is network people that are engaged in best practices and people that are interested in best practices. And again, we have a huge, huge healthcare system, two and a half trillion dollars. Be, being this job <laughs> makes you very humble because you realize how quickly there's there's so much you don't know. But being able to network with very smart people doing very smart and innovative things, it's a real privilege and it's a lot of fun. And uh, I think there's been a big market for what we're what we do, and we anticipate that being true going forward. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on WebTalkRadio.net. I'm the show's host, Dr. Steve Feldman. We're speaking today with Jim Froge from the Center for Health Transformation. Jim, I had the sense from um, perusing the center's website that the center doesn't really believe that these little tiny projects at the periphery of the healthcare system are really going to solve our problem, that we really need to transform our healthcare system. Is that right? Well, I think a lot of the tiny little projects are things that grow into things that are very successful. I think the mistake that was just made in the health care reform bill that became law in March is that it's too centered on existing programs that have failed. The biggest example, the Medicaid program was expanded by between 15 and 20 million people. States like Texas, for example, will have to add 2 million people to the Medicaid rolls, and that's just... No one stopped to ask, is Medicaid good for the people in it? Now, perhaps you'd say that if there's no coverage, Medicaid is better than nothing, but why not mainstream everyone into plans that look, for example, like what members of Congress have? If you're a federal employee or a member of Congress, you get to choose between over at least a dozen, no matter where you live in the country, private sector plans. If you don't like it, you can change once a year. Uh, Medicaid, and, and as a physician, I'm sure you know this, um, Medicaid is the lowest payer in the system. So if you're a physician or a hospital, you know, most physicians' hospitals do accept Medicaid, but if the rates pay are so low, it becomes a real challenge to see everyone on Medicaid, and that part certainly was not reformed. It just added more people to a broken system, and the truth is I certainly would not want to be in Medicaid, and when I do speeches around the country, I always ask people, I said, don't take my word for it or the word of anyone on television or any congressman or any politician. Ask your own doctor if he or she takes Medicaid, and ask your own doctor if they want to see more of the middle class in Medicaid. And I think you'd be a little bit surprised by your, the results you get, and doctors in private will say they're less enamored of the system than they might otherwise let on. Well, there could be some variation state to state. Uh, That's you, true. That is uh, true. I, I just think I happen to practice in a state where the Medicaid, you know, is a, a pretty good <laughs> You know, it's it's easier to get drugs for patients in our state's Medicaid than maybe from certain private or other plans. But uh, I'm sure other states are much worse. But one of the things you mentioned that I am totally enamored by because I, I see that the fraud, the uninsured, the medical errors, and the cost are all caused by having a third-party payment system. And I just love the idea of health uh, savings accounts, the HSAs you mentioned. We had a guest on a previous show who said, no, that doesn't work because um, 
because people aren't smart enough, you know, to know what's good for them. Um, you know, they're smart enough to buy their groceries. They're smart enough to buy their cell phones. Why aren't they smart enough to pay for their own medical care? Jim, what do you think? Well, I think that is an incredibly patronizing attitude. And why would someone who has that attitude assume they're smart enough to make the decision for someone they've never met? Or some bureaucrat is. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very condescending to people, and it's very condescending to the physician community to suggest that people can't make these decisions. Here's an exercise I often do when I do speeches, and it's a very simple one. It always uh, gets people to smile. Because people who say HSAs are too complicated and too hard. By the way, I've had an HSA for five years. I love mine. So I practice what I preach. We've had them here since 2005. Uh, I actually have quite a bit of savings built up in mine now, and it's worked out extremely well. So I can speak from experience that it's a good plan, and that's true for most people that are in it. Um, but the other thing is, you can't shop for health care while you're lying in the gutter bleeding if you're in a car accident. And the answer is, of course that is true. Of course that is true. If you are unconscious, of course you can't decide what clinic or hospital to go to. But in front of every audience I've done this, I want everyone to think of their last three interfaces with the medical community. Raise your hand if for any one of them you were unconscious and totally unable to make a decision about where you would go. Rarely do you get even one hand. Something like 98 to 99% of interfaces, be it at a hospital, be it with a physician, physician, be it with a clinic, people have plenty of time to make a decision about where they want to go, particularly because in America, about 80% of our health costs are chronic conditions, diabetes, congestive heart failure, Alzheimer's, other things that people have for many years. So, of course, they have the ability to shop around and make decisions. So the idea that people can't do it, I mean, it's the same kind of attitude people had, you know, decades ago about cell phones or computers. You know, who would ever want one of those silly computers? You know, you'd never. Those are way too complicated. Those will never be a laptop on everyone's desk. You know, that was the attitude back in the mid-'80s. Who would want a personal computer? And, of course, they were all proven wrong, and uh, they will be here also. Jim, I, I promised um, to be mindful of your time, and I know it's coming to an end. Um, I hope you'll come back because there's so much more I want to cover with you. But in those last couple of minutes, are there any any key things you want to tell us about the center or about things that our audience should know about making sure they're getting the best possible health care? Sure. Well, again, our, our website is healthtransformation.net, and we would encourage anyone to come there, take a look around, give us some feedback, uh, either to me personally or to our, uh, our general email line. Uh, and we, the healthcare system basically works for most people most of the time, but there are tremendous opportunities for cost savings that do not restrict access to care. The healthcare fraud issue is a huge one. There's so much stolen out of our system. That's money stolen, stolen directly from doctors and stolen directly from patients. And why Congress just wouldn't pass a bill dealing with health care fraud, you could have all the savings and cover everyone without health insurance just with that money alone. There's enough money in health care fraud to cover everyone who doesn't have insurance with a plan that they choose themselves and then can switch if they don't want. I mean, the problem with the health care system is we don't have the ability to change plans. If your health insurance is treating you badly, you didn't choose it, most likely. Your employer did. And the surest way to get bad service, and a great analogy is cable TV. Uh, in cable TV, they've rigged it, and this is true all across the country. So there's only one or two, if that, uh, choices for your cable TV. Why do you think they give such bad service? Because you can't leave. 
That's why they give you such bad service. If you can leave, they treat you much, much better. And in industries where you have choices, the service and the quality tends to be much higher. In industries where you have very little choice, uh, they treat you poorly. And putting people in one choice, be it Medicare or Medicaid or a health insurance plan that your employer chooses for you, guarantees that you don't have choice and the ability. The most power you have as a consumer is the ability to walk away. If you don't have the ability to walk away, you'll get bad service. It's not complicated. I think choice is a great thing for service and quality, and I think it reduces cost too. Um, Jim, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you being on the show. Sure, doctors. Happy to be here. I look forward to talking to you again. Our health care system can benefit both from a major overhaul and from focused quick fixes. Jim makes a passionate appeal that we should address the fraud in the system. If the fraud is as big as he says it is, eliminating it could save us so much money that could be put to better use. I'm not sure I believe there's that much fraud in the system. There's certainly other problems that need to be addressed. Uh, Addressing the uninsured, I appreciate Jim's point that job-to-job insurance coverage just, just doesn't make sense anymore. I'm not sure it made sense at the beginning, but especially today when people change jobs more frequently, the the current system for insuring people just doesn't make sense. And even the whole concept of insurance itself uh, may create as many problems perhaps as it solves. Fortunately, our healthcare system works for most people most of the time, uh, but in some ways that gets in the way of energy for transforming the system. Hopefully with the leadership of folks like Jim, we'll see improvement in our healthcare system uh, in the time to come. Next week on our show, we have a special guest coming, Dr. Kevin Weiss. He's president and CEO of the American Board of Medical Specialties. He'll be helping us understand what medical specialties are, and how to assure that you're seeing a doctor who is certified by a reputable medical specialty board. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you'll listen next week. Best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.